You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. If you are like many people, you struggle to some degree with prayer. One thing I've learned after 15 years in pastoral ministry is that everybody thinks they ought to know how to pray and lots of people don't know how. And so we're timid. Sometimes we're afraid. Because after all, we're supposed to know this. Like every, If you're a Christian, you're supposed to know about prayer, right? And maybe somebody didn't really teach us. And maybe we struggle with it, and maybe we're afraid everyone else will really know a lot about it, and if we pray, they will realize we're imposters. We struggle. A lot of people struggle to know how to pray. Jesus' disciples struggled to know how to pray. They actually said, Lord, (laughs) teach us to pray. And He did. We struggle with prayer in other ways too, aside from just sometimes not knowing how to do it or what to say. Sometimes we struggle with prayer and the way it works. We struggle to know, like, what's the point of this? People ask questions. I've heard in, I I mean, I hear this frequently. If God already knows what's going to happen, why pray? Are we asking Him to change His mind? Are we asking Him to do something that's already different than what's already set? And How does that work? And what does that look like? And what's the function? What's the effect? Does it really... Like, what does prayer really change? So today we're going to look at a couple of case studies in prayer. One in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. One the patriarch of the Hebrew people, the other, the Son of God. Both petition. One gets a yes, the other gets a no. And as we look at the text of Scripture and come and allow the words here to fill our hearts, we'll begin to see that prayer is more about forming our character than changing God's mind. Hold on to that. Prayer, which we often think is about changing God's mind, like, hey God, here's what I want you to do. I don't know what you have in mind, but here's what I have in mind. Here's my list. Prayer is more about forming our character than changing God's mind. Let's talk about Abraham. So Abraham, just a few chapters earlier, in Genesis 12, doesn't know God yet. He's a pagan probably is involved in a tribe or a family with many gods in the ancient Near East. 
many thousand years ago. And one day, the God speaks to him. The God who created all things. The God who hung the stars in the sky. The God who formed the cosmos and Abraham. That God speaks. He says, Abraham, I want you to go somewhere. I want you to leave your family. I want, to leave, I want you to leave your security. I want, to, I want you to leave your tribe. And I want you to go to a land. I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you this land. And I'm going to give you a family. And I'm going to use your family to bless all the other families. Not a few of them. All of them. Just a few chapters later, Abraham is coming to know God. Coming to know Him better. And yet, there's still a lot to learn. So we come to this situation where the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, widely known, have come to the attention of God. The cry out against them has come to God's ears. And God decides that He will render judgment. Familiar story. Even folks who don't know the Bible know Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And Abraham, when he gets alone with God, decides to try something. It's not blind faith because he's learning something already about God's character. In fact, in this very passage, he learned something about God's character. Abraham and these mysterious men are there. They look towards Sodom, and you, can't, you, can't, you, you hear God thinking out loud. He's kind of deliberating. He's thinking out loud. And he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? After all, I've got big plans for Abraham. I'm intending to bless all the nations, all the families of the earth through Abraham. I don't need... like. I don't need to hold this back from him. He needs to know. He needs to know how I operate. He needs to know what I value. These are the things he needs to know. So shall I withhold it? And God answers himself. He's not waiting for someone else to answer him. He answers himself. Verse 19, no, I've chosen him that he may charge his children, and listen to this, charge his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. How? By doing two things. Do you remember what they were? Righteousness and justice. Decides, decides to reveal something of himself to Abraham at a deeper level. And the thing that he's revealing is that he values righteousness and justice. God values these things and he has called Abraham and his family to fill the earth with them. So Abraham, you know, he's standing back and he's kind of paying attention and there's some interesting things happening here and those two guys, the other guys, head off. And Abraham's there with the Lord and he says, you know, I'm thinking about this. He's kind of maybe got this inner dialogue thing happening. You ever have an inner dialogue thing? It's maybe it's like that. I'm hearing the Lord say he's committed to righteousness. I hear the Lord say he's committed to justice. I hear the Lord say he's called my family to be his agents and representatives in those matters. And I'm wondering, I'm, I'm wondering 
if I can ask him for something on that basis. Like I've learned that he's committed to righteousness and justice. I think I'm going to ask a question. Notice how you have this contrast between the righteousness of Abraham's family and the unrighteousness of Sodom. But Abraham's prayer, his petition to God on Sodom's behalf is based on what he's learning about God's commitment to justice and righteousness. And so Abraham says, hey God, question. <laughs> no, don't be... In fact, forget, forget question. How about supposition? Let's have a hypothetical situation. Verse 22, 23, 24. Suppose, just imagine what it would be like if there are 50 righteous men in the city. I mean, you got this whole city... 50 is not a big number. What if there are 50 righteous men in the city? I'm hearing you say you're committed to the righteous and you're committed to justice. So I'm, I just want to know, are, are you planning to sweep away the righteous along with the wicked? And if so, how does that jive with what you've been telling me about your character? That you're committed to righteousness and justice. You kind of see how the wheels are turning for Abraham, aren't they? And God responds. You almost get a sense that God planned it this way. <laughs> In His wisdom and providence. Verse 24, Abraham, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous and the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. That doesn't seem just. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem righteous. It seems... The opposite. I mean, if you slay the innocent, doesn't that feel unjust, God? And you're supposed to be just. At least that's what you just said. So let's like help me understand this. You can kind of see Abraham's on this journey of deeper communion with God. This journey of deeper relationship with God. He, he knows Him, but he doesn't know Him as well as he needs to know Him. And so he's on this. He's there. Let's figure it. Let's figure this out. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge, the just one, of all the earth do what is just? You've just heard God say, I'm, I love justice. And Abraham says, then why won't you do justice? And God says, all right, I'll go look, and if I find 50 righteous people, I'll spare the whole city for their sake. And Abraham kind of leans back on his heels and, huh. Turns out he is committed to justice. He said it. Kind of took a little chance based on what I'm learning about God. Made a petition, an intercession. Notice Abraham's other-oriented love. He's not just interested in, hey God, can you do this for me? Hey God, can you do this for me? He's, hey God, can you do this for them? Can you care for them? Can you spare them? Can you do righteous and just, righteousness and justice for them? And so maybe he's kind of gaining some... Con he's kind of experiencing some spiritual formation, isn't he? 
He's learning about God's character as he communes with God. He's learning that he can intercede for the righteous on their behalf before God. And if he can intercede for 50, why not 45? So, hey God, thank you. Another question. Hypothetical situation. Let's say five are missing. Do the count off, take the roll, and you only find 45 righteous people. Your character doesn't change, I don't think. What do we do with that? And God says, I'll spare them. The whole city for their sake. And you can kind of get a sense where Abraham's almost like, I wonder like, how thick this, how long the thick ice will last. <laughs> He's kind of starting to tread a little more carefully. He's like, don't, don't be angry. I got another hypothetical. I don't want to tread on thin ice here. I don't want to over push your generosity, but what if we can only find 40, 30, and ultimately 10? And you can see how Abraham is growing in his covenantal relationship with God. God knows what God will do. What God wants is for Abraham to discover God's character and live into that discovery. The point here is not for Abraham to change God's mind, is it? It's not like God's sitting back in a rocking chair. Let me think about this for a minute. Figure it out. I'm going to come up with a plan and we'll just see what... That's not the posture, is it? You have a God who is revealing Himself to the one He has called. And in that revelation, there is a formative power. It's grace, isn't it? It changes Him, Abraham. And the point isn't for God to change His mind the point is for Eric the point is for Abraham to grow to be formed to discover God to go deeper with God and to step into his role presently of being for the sake of the nations isn't that what he's doing isn't he trying in this moment to bless one of the families of the earth the righteous in Sodom isn't that what God called him to do? Bless the families of the earth? Doesn't he have to mature and grow and become the kind of person who's able to do that? Because a few chapters ago, he didn't even know God, let alone know that God was committed to justice and righteousness. And now, he's going through this deeper journey into the life of God. And he's learning what God is like. The point of this passage is not changing God's mind. It's forming Abraham's character. He becomes increasingly consumed by other-oriented love. What about them, God? Won't you do right by them? Let me pray for them. Let me hold them before you. Let me intercede. Let me petition on their behalf. So this prayer, this spiritual discipline of prayer, this 
communion with God, this walking with God. They are together. They are speaking. They are interacting. They are knowing one another deeply. The point is His formation. The point is for God's character to become increasingly characteristic of Abraham's life. Prayer is more about forming our character than changing God's mind. Different prayer. Different testament. Different person. Different time. Another familiar text though. Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus. Has just predicted that one of his best friends will abandon him. Has just shared his last meal with the disciples. He is awaiting his betrayer and he goes to this garden, perhaps a garden he prayed in many times. Gethsemane, and he says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Peter, James, and John get to go a little further. He took with him Peter, James, and John, verse 33 in chapter 14, began to be distressed and agitated. Think about this for a minute. A lot of times when we think about Jesus, right, we get those kind of, you know, the picture... You may have one in your house. It's Jesus, and he looks so peaceful and tranquil, and he's just got this long hair, and a, he's just so calm. Nobody has a picture of Jesus agitated in their house. Ever notice that? Maybe we should get one and hang it up somewhere. Like, G, even the pictures of Jesus praying in the garden, right? Make sure. There's not one behind me. There may be somewhere. Jesus praying in the garden, right? There's a son, and he looks, he's praying, and but... He doesn't look agitated. He doesn't look disturbed. There's no blood, sweat coming down his face. And yet, the biblical portrait here is this stunning agony. He is distressed and he is agitated. He says to them, I am deeply grieved. Deeply grieved. Even to death. Stay here. Stay awake. They don't do that. They do stay. They don't stay away. He goes a little further. And the one who is deeply grieved even to death throws himself on the ground. When was the last time that you went to pray and your heart was so deeply burdened you just threw your body on the ground? That's where we are here with Jesus. He throws himself on the ground. And he cries out in prayer, if possible, that the hour might pass from him. The narrator kind of introduces that and then gives us the quote. Verse 36, he said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. And if you know your Bibles, you know that frequently in the Bible, cup, the cup, is an image 
of divine wrath. God says, I'll pour out the cup of my wrath. So this passage, Jesus' prayer is invested with this deep, stunning, mysterious reality that He is preparing to bear everything God has against our sin. All of His justice. All of His wrath. All of the condemnation. All of the hell. Not because God is a mean old man up in heaven just taking a Jesus out behind the woodshed. Jesus says throughout the Gospels at the end of the age, I'm the judge. You're going to stand before me. So here we have God in the person of Jesus taking God's wrath on Himself, don't we? This is the judge bearing the cup of His own judgment. That's perfect love. If it's possible... Allow this cup and everything it means to be removed, to pass from me. Yet, and this friends, not what I want. What you want. Not my will. Yours. And in those sentences, in those words, in that sentence, Jesus says to us, this isn't really about changing God's mind, is it? It's really about forming, in this instance, Jesus' character. Now let me be clear. Jesus' character is not deficient. Right? There are some, there's, there's two kinds of formation, right? There is corrective formation, <laughs> where there's a problem, we've got to fix it. There's a cancer, it's got to be cut out. There's, you know, a bro- something's broken, it's got to be repaired. Someone is disobedient, they need discipline. There's that kind of corrective formation. But then there's also a sort of formation that is just part of growing up, isn't it? It's just part of becoming mature. It's part of becoming the kind of people God wants us to be. It doesn't mean we're behind. It doesn't mean we're off base. It doesn't mean we're messed up. It just means we're being foreign. And this is why in Hebrews, the author can say that Jesus was perfected through what He suffered. Because in this moment, in this time of testing, in this tribulation, Jesus is being perfected. In the sense that He is coming fully with nothing reserved into His vocation to rescue the world. You. From His own wrath against you. In this moment, His heart is overflowing With perfect love. And that's the only reason he can say, not what I want, what you want. Not what's comfortable for me, what's best for them. 
Because prayer, brothers and sisters, is more about forming our character than changing God's mind. Isn't it? This is about Jesus living into His vocation to be the Savior of the world. Not about persuading God to figure out a different solution. And in this deep communion, this deep prayer where everyone else has abandoned Him, where His suffering is so pronounced and so over the top and so just unimaginable, in that moment His communion with His Father is deeper and closer and richer. And there is nothing in Him held back. from what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their incomparable wisdom have decided is good and right. This is Jesus. Embodying for us, for our sake, for our salvation, the eternal unqualified, perfect love that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share eternally. And Jesus embodies that for us. By the end of the passage, He has struggled, He has grieved, He has thrown himself on the ground. He has found his friends asleep. But he is resolved. Get up. Let's go. My betrayer is at hand. He steps out of that communion with God. He doesn't step out of communion with God. He steps out of that moment of prayer in communion with God. With his Resolve set at our salvation with all of the terror it will bring. This moment for Jesus is a moment of climactic formation, of embracing all of the implications of His person and his work of his identity and his love. And we see here that sometimes as with Abraham we come out of time and prayer and man that was amazing. Can you see what God did? It's like that was stunning and it was spectacular. We feel excited and it's top of the mountain and we're feeling good and we feel close to God and we're, we're excited and he said yes and he's answering our prayers and he's, he's showing favor and all these good things they are there and sometimes we walk out of the garden and we're bleeding. Bleeding. Doesn't mean God isn't listening. Does not mean God doesn't care. It does not mean un- un- He's uninterested. It does not mean He's some sort of puppet master hanging out in the clouds just having His kicks with our pain. 
Imagine if Jesus asked the kind of questions we normally ask. If He's in the garden and He's praying, let this cup pass from me. I'm grieved to death. Imagine He's saying, will my prayer work? Like, what does that question even mean in the garden of Gethsemane? Will my prayer work? What's it supposed to do? Does God hear my prayer? Imagine Jesus asking those sorts of questions. He knows His Father hears His prayer. He knows. But His ultimate prayer, you've got kind of His initial prayer and His ultimate prayer. I'd really like to avoid the pain I'm about to endure. However, my desires are not the most important thing. Your purposes are. Notice the formative process. Notice the movement from my preferences to your purposes. That's what prayer is about. That's how it's supposed to work. You'll know your prayers are working if you're becoming more like Jesus. The answer isn't the test of whether the prayer was, is working. The transformation of our character and the increasing of Christ's character in our bodies. That's what it's supposed to do. If I'm becoming more like Jesus, it doesn't matter what the answer is, the prayer is working. That's what's supposed to happen. Because prayer is more about the formation of our character than the changing of God's mind. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt tremendously sometimes. It doesn't mean God is unconcerned with our pain. It doesn't mean God doesn't care about our sorrows. It doesn't mean He doesn't care about our griefs. It doesn't mean He doesn't care about our loved ones. It doesn't mean He doesn't care. Jesus did not emerge from the garden with the sense that God doesn't care about me. He emerged from the garden with the sense that He was living into God's purposes for Him. Go back to those questions we ask. Is this working? Does God hear me? If God already knows the future, can my prayer, does it like why even pray? I, think about those questions. And think about the assumptions that come with those questions. I'm going to be a little gentle because we, I think we probably, we ask those kinds of questions. So let's just think, like, what's going on behind those questions? What do we assume about God and the world when we ask questions like, will my prayer change anything? In that moment, with that question, we're assuming that the world is maybe like a chess game. Uh, I don't play chess. I have heard that there are computers that are unbeatable. And the reason they're unbeatable in the game of chess is because if you were to sit down and play one, even if you're the best human in the world, like in a, in a microsecond, the computer can calculate every possible move you could, even, you could ever make 
and in a microsecond, it can calculate how to defend against that move. It's unbeatable. The future is set, regardless of the path you choose. It knows, it's working, it's done, you lose. Why even play if you know <laughs> your playing doesn't change anything? Why pray if you know your prayer doesn't change anything? Is God a chess master with all of the moves planned ahead of time and whatever we do, we're simply pawns on his board? But when we ask the question that way, does this work? Will this change God's mind? We may be thinking the world is kind of like that. Another image that comes to mind is maybe like you know, the fishbowl in the doctor's office. And there's some kids over there kind of like tapping on it and just kind of picking on the fish, trying to confuse them. Maybe later on, you got to like clean out the tank so they get that net and they just swoop in and they pull you out and you just feel yanked around. Sometimes I wonder when we pray if we don't feel yanked around. Will this work? Does it matter? Am I swimming in circles? Is my entire life subject to the whims of someone that I have no influence over? That's not the picture we get in either of these passages, is it? But it is the kind of world we kind of assume when we ask, can I change God's mind or will this work? So what's the world really like? If It's not just like a predetermined board game with a higher intelligence governing every move. The world is like this. The world was made by a good God, and you were made in his image. And being made in the image comes with responsibility. And when you're given responsibility, your decisions have consequences, positively or negatively. And God, in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, in his providence, has designed to give you an immense amount of responsibility and the consequent influence that comes with it. It's been that way since the first garden. And we learn there that when a human being made in God's image and endowed with the responsibility that comes with being made in God's image, when that human being, when he chooses to betray that responsibility... Unimaginable darkness is unleashed into the, into the world. Not because God got caught off guard, not because God didn't have a plan, not because God is powerless, but because God has trusted us and we have betrayed his trust. In his wisdom, in his providence, in his sovereignty, he gives us real space, not infinite space, but some space to govern the world on his behalf. That's the vocation that Adam has. Here's the world. Run it. And when he sinned, his sin, with all of the responsibility he carried, unleashed darkness into the world. And curse. And God met that 
human betrayal with his discipline and promise. There are consequences, and you're going to see just how stunning they are when one of your children kills the other one. But ultimately, I'll send another Adam, and he'll crush the head of the serpent. We live in a world under a curse. New creation is at work, but the old world is not fully gone yet. It is broken, it is darkened, it is marked by sin, it is marked by pain, it is marked by grief, and many of you know that grief deeply. And when we come to God in prayer with those kinds of griefs, weighing with stunning, inarticulate pain, we often leave disappointed because He didn't change His mind. I do not want to take your pain lightly. Last weekend was the 31st anniversary of the death of my father. He died when I was 10. Many of you know that. Some of you may not. I cannot count the nights after his death, that I laid in bed as a child and begged God to give me my daddy back. In our moments where the answer to a prayer is no, God is not far away. He's not distant. He's not looking down from heaven with scorn and frustration at our stubborn prayers. He looks upon us as He looks upon His beloved Son, knowing that He will not necessarily give us what we want in the moment but He is at work in stunning, mysterious, unimaginable ways to make us whole. He is working to make us whole. And in that moment of Gethsemane-like pain, when our hearts are deeply grieved and our hearts are broken and we can't do anything but fling ourselves before God and beg for His mercy in those moments, if, if the prayer can be in the power of the Holy Spirit, not what I want, but what you want, then in that moment, we are moving into a position for God to do what He really wants to do through us, not only for our sake, but for the sake of the church and for the life of the world. Which is precisely what happens in Genesis 
and Mark. You have an Abraham who is consumed with love for the righteous in the city. And he begs God on their behalf, not knowing whether God will like it or not. And you have Jesus bleeding in agony. Not because God has abandoned him. Not because God has said no. But because he is living into that purpose. And that suffering, that travail, that working, that self-giving, not what I want, but what you want, and all of the suffering and all of the self-denial that comes with it, God uses it to rescue and reconcile and launch a new creation in which He will ultimately dry every tear. That's where this thing is going, friends. And all of our suffering and all of our grief somehow, mysteriously, will be transformed into an eternal glory that we cannot now even begin to imagine. I don't understand that. I don't know how it works. But God is good. Even when He says no. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.